Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested in this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, join Gelt. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So super excited about the guest that we have today. I mean, he is building this rocket ship. It's unbelievable. You know, talking about timing, too. I think that we're going to be talking about all of that stuff. Crazy stories, cutting the honeymoon short because, you know, one of the investors, you know, ended up not coming through. Runway, you know, the good stuff and the crazy stuff that we like to hear, building, scaling, financing, and all of the above. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Peter Majeranowski. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So originally, I mean, obviously, you're, you're a first-generation American born to uh, two Polish immigrants, and there were 5,000 people in the town that you were born. So, you know, I'm sure that that felt a little bit different, you know, to a certain degree. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Yeah, I mean, I had a, a great childhood, really wonderful town, unbelievable emphasis on education. Uh, but I did feel a little bit like an outsider. And, uh, and, and so that, that posed some challenges. And on top of that, I had a uh, slight dis learning disability of dyslexia. And so you put that all together and I uh, think I had some some early challenges I had to deal with, but fortunately I was able to overcome those. Well, hey, you know, you were able to overcome those challenges and, and dyslexia, you know, ended up, you know, propelling you, you know, when you really, you know, learned how to deal with it. So what would you say that, uh, that this taught you, you know, when you really learn how to uh, attack things from a different angle? Never give up. Uh, that's the key. You just never give up uh, and surround yourself with good people. That's key. Now, in, in your case, uh, you know, obviously you, you learn how to deal with it and you ended up going to Cornell. You know, I mean, who would have thought, you know, going to Cornell? So, uh, so in this case, you know, what you did is you studied applied economics. Why applied economics? Yeah, because I, I wasn't cut out to be an engineer. <laughs> That's the real answer. Uh, you know, everyone tells you, oh, you're good at math and science. You should go study engineering. And it just wasn't a good fit for my, my interests or my personality. And I started talking to my friends that were doing uh, applied economics, and it just seemed more strategic, maybe, uh, is the right word, and, and less detail-oriented, but definitely more visionary. And so I, I love that aspect of it. 
Um, and a lot of the, the hard skills you learn from doing math and science apply very well to finance and, and economics. So it was, uh, it was a good fit for me. So the Navy obviously, you know, helped with, uh, with covering the bills when it comes to studies. But, um, but how, how do you come across the idea of, you know, maybe the Navy, you know, being as, as, as a good option for you? Yeah, my, my father was a, an Army veteran. Uh, he was a lot older than my mother. Uh, he escaped Poland during the war, uh, joined the Polish Army in France, and then France was occupied. He joined the British Army. And so uh, he used to really always emphasize that the military was a great learning experience for him and that he thought uh, it's a, it, it would be for me. And so he encouraged me to look at uh, the service academies as well as the ROTC scholarships. I really wanted to go to a, a, a regular civilian university, so ROTC seemed like a, a great fit. Uh, certainly, it made a lot of sense economically, but also uh, it taught me a lot. And you know, people probably uh, who work with me are sick of all my Navy-isms and, and, and all my lessons learned from the Navy, but I think it really made me uh, who I am today. Now, for you, I guess dyslexia, you know, was a, you know, a key ingredient of, of learning to not give up. And I think that that comes in very handy, you know, when you're an entrepreneur and, and we'll talk about the entrepreneurial journey that you're in now. Uh, but then the other thing is your parents, too. I mean, as immigrants coming to the U.S., seeing them, you know, the grinding, you know, and hustling, you know, to be able to make a better living, you know, for for their family. I'm sure that that was quite inspiring for you as well. Yeah, and, and I'm an only child, and so I think you, you throw that in the mix as well, and you become a very tight unit, and you really lean on each other and support each other. And I had unconditional love of my parents and tremendous support, and they would give me everything first ahead of them. And so uh, that was a, a big, big plus for me. So the Navy, uh, also working for the Pentagon, you know, you served in the Pentagon, you went to Iraq, uh, there you were working on the reconstruction, and that is where you got kind of like the uh, the bug for, for, for business. Why is that? Absolutely. Uh, it was just fascinating for me to see uh, in real time how business can be a, a force of good and how the invisible hands of supply and demand can, can align well with policy and, and try to propel and rebuild a society. Um, and being over there in that role, I got to see all kinds of businesses and all kinds of entrepreneurs and, and some uh, trading families that had been trading in that region even before Iraq was Iraq uh, when it was still the Ottoman Empire. And so uh, it was just fascinating to me. And and I really uh, got excited about the potential of business. And and yeah, as you said, it was the bug and I got hooked. So then, so then after all of that stuff, you know, you actually really got into it. Uh, you joined Windmill International and there you were investing, you know, in all types of countries in the Eastern European, you know, region, and, and there you combine, you know, a few different things like real estate, infrastructure. So, I yeah. mean, those are like quite some really interesting sectors. I mean, what, what were some of the aspects that you got from being on the investment side and doing this kind of deals? Yeah, it was a little bit like the Wild West. Uh, we spent a lot of time in particular in Romania. And, you know, at those days, they had just joined NATO. They were soon going to join the EU. Uh, there was not a lot of uh, outside investors. And so our thesis was that we were going to manage uh, a, a perceived risk uh, that wasn't quite there uh, because they were on their way to join the EU and, and were putting in place the right laws. And so uh, we, we had all kinds of opportunities. That country was in rapid growth mode. And so uh, and there was not a lot of specialists either. And so for me, as a, as a young man, it was a wonderful way to learn all aspects of the business and wear multiple hats. 
And oftentimes in some of our investments, I was uh, in the C-suite taking, you know, pretty active jobs, uh, rolling up my sleeves and getting into the business. And so I learned a lot. So the MBA, why? Why? I mean, it sounds like you were already like really into the weeds. You were doing good deals. You were in it. So the MBA at what point, you know, came knocking and 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 why was that a good time to to kind of like put the pause on on the professional side and 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 learn a little bit more? Yeah, well, I was really intrigued by a program at, at, at Fuqua, at Duke University, that was a globally focused MBA. And since I was doing a lot of global business uh, in Eastern Europe, but with often foreign partners, it just seemed like a, a great fit and the, ne the right next step. Um, and also just expand my, my tool set and expand my network. And because it was a globally focused MBA, tended to have a, a cohort of, of older students. So they were a little bit more advanced in their career. And I still lean on that network all the time. And so uh, I'm very glad I did it. Now, talking about network, you know, one, one person that you ended up getting an introduction via your family is the person that invented the polio vaccine. And there was a conversation there that you had that changed everything for you. Yeah, uh, having dinner at, uh, his name is Dr. Hillary Kaprowski, uh, just outside of Philadelphia. And at that time, he had a plant sciences foundation uh, that was making vaccines and plants. And he said, you know, we got kind of frustrated with how long it was taking uh, the, the medical world to get comfortable with that. So we started looking at industrial applications. And he developed a non-smoking tobacco plant that could be used for biofuels. And he just had his patent granted. He was starting to get some press and uh, and he, he needed help on the business side. He wanted to commercialize it. And that time it was uh, right on the heels of the Great Recession. I wasn't doing much in Eastern Europe at all. Uh, and, and I needed something new to do. And I loved the challenge of building something and especially building something that I thought would be good for the planet. So then what happened next? So uh, I... Speaking of networks, again, uh, I reached out to a few of my classmates from my business school class that had experience working in, in biotech uh, or, and had a PhD uh, or a good science background. And really only one person answered my email, and that's uh, my co-founder, Julian Bobeg. And so uh, we started talking with Hillary, and, and before we knew it, Hillary said, let's start a company and let's do it. So then why did you think that they were the right co-founders for this. Uh, Julian had uh, a PhD in chemical engineering. Uh, he worked in a biotech startup, I think is employee number four in Japan, all the way to IPO. So he had that background. Hillary Koprovsky, uh had the scientific chops and the resources and the network. And so we put those things together in one of the worst times possible to raise early stage hard tech uh, capital. Uh, and, and we were able to somehow find a way to put some capital together to, to get the company off the ground. Now, for the people that are listening, you know, to really get it, what is the business model? How do you guys make money? Well, back then, uh, we were going to be making uh, uh, sugars and oils that could go into the biofuel industry. Uh, what we found out, though, was that as we were scaling a clean tech 1.0, reached its end, and we could see the end of the earth for our company, and we really had to quickly find a new application. Uh, we tried a lot of different things, and it was by chance that someone asked us to see if we could get anything of value from running a t-shirt through our process. 
And sure enough, we work. And so today, uh, we have now rebranded, and I joke that we're not a startup, but a restart, and we're called CERT. And that's short for circular because we're very um, embedded in a circular economy for fashion and for textiles. And so our business model is a waste-of-value model. We take old end-of-use textiles, um, the ones that nobody really has a use for, mixed-color polycotton blends, which is over 60% of what's produced today. We break it down in our process, separate them, purify them so that the polyester can be remade back into polyester and the cotton can be remade back into fiber. And so we sell those fibers back into the very beginning of the supply chain so they can be made into new clothing. So also, you know, to really, because I mean, doing all this type of stuff, obviously it requires to raise some money is capital, capital intensive. And so how much capital have you guys raised to date? Uh, We've raised over 60 million of at-risk capital, and then we have probably another 10 million on top of that from non-dilutive sources. Okay, got it. Now, now in this case, I know that you have some crazy stories, one that involved you being in the honeymoon, you know? So, uh, I know, I mean, this is a crazy story, and, and you know, there's nothing like, like having a very supportive uh, and loving, you know, partner that really supports you, you know, on, on, on taking the leap of faith and, and being an entrepreneur, because I mean, people think that this is like being on the magazines and, you know, it's glamorous, but, but there's none of that stuff. You know, it's a, it's a tough journey. So I guess how, what, what happened there on the, on the honeymoon? Yeah. You know, uh, I have all the scars that I think a lot of entrepreneurs do and you're right. It's not all the glam that you see, especially in the early days. And our honeymoon was right around the transition from biofuels to textiles. And uh, we had uh, we, we were we were low on capital. Um, we had an investor that was ready to invest. I had a board meeting a few days before the wedding, and uh, one of our observers basically spooked the investor, and uh, and we had no money. We had maxed out the credit card. I was the personal guarantor on that, and it, my wedding was July 30th. That was also payroll. So I uh, I ended up wiring the company a lot of money for me just so we could cover payroll. And uh, I didn't want to tell my wife uh, immediately because I didn't want to ruin the wedding for her or for me. And so I had to really compartmentalize. Uh, fortunately, I was able to loan the company some money. So I think it's also important for entrepreneurs to, to, to save and be eyes wide open in terms of what it means to, to start a company. And so fast forward, uh, you know, I cut the, the, the honeymoon short to, I think, three days and we're floating in the waters of Key West. And I explained to my wife the situation. Uh, that we know we're really in the hole uh, for the company. Uh, and she had total faith in me. And I think having a supportive spouse when you're an entrepreneur is a superpower. And, you know, I think that that's not emphasized enough when you, you read the books. Uh, but I, I think it's something that everybody should think about long and hard before they start a company. Oh, 100%. And uh, obviously, you know, that uh, one thing that you mentioned there, a board observer, I mean, typically the board observers are those that are able to attend meetings, but they're not able to vote or or any of that stuff. But, you know, people don't know this, but they have just as much influence because they can actually talk and be part of the conversation. So what happened with that board observer? What, what the hell did that board observer say or do to spook that investor that was coming in? Yeah, you know, I think... Uh... From a psychological point of view, I blocked out a lot of it, to be honest. Uh, from what I remember, there was something that the board observer had to sign or agree to or maybe just uh, objected. And it, and it, it, 
it, it spooked the investor thinking that there could be some legal liability or something like that. And so that, uh, that you know, turned it off. And the, that normally wouldn't be that big a deal if it weren't for the fact that we, we had no runway. And so that, that's what really turned on the, the pressure cooker. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domains. I mean, I can tell you one thing, and that is that as a founder, you're always thinking about branding. Now, one thing that is very important in that, you know, is that you need traction, you need to grow, you need to succeed. And having a name that is recognizable on a really amazing domain is the way to go. So that is why it's very important to establish the online presence with a clear and distinguishable identity. And you can do that with .tech tech domains. So doc tech domains are the go-to namespace to build anything in tech. They have actually helped many brands in the industry to make a name for themselves, just like onex.tech with their advanced Androids designed to replicate human movements and behaviors. So really, really, really cool stuff and cutting edge. And again, thousands of companies like this, you know, are also taking advantage of dot tech domains. So uh, also remember that .tech domains can do the same, you know, for your company. They're also providing a great offer to every single one of you in the DealMakers audience. Is one year domain for $10 and a five-year domain for $50. So head now to the special URL, which is go.tech slash DealMakers. And that is, again, go.tech forward slash DealMakers. So go get your own domain. So this episode is brought to you by SaneBox. So are you tired of sorting through junk email in your inbox so that you can find the emails that you really need? SaneBox does the sorting for you, setting the average user more than two hours a week on email management. Using its proprietary AI, SaneBox organizes your incoming emails into appropriate folders so that when you open your inbox, you'll only see the most important emails. You don't have to lift a finger, nothing to install either. SaneBox works with any email client. SaneBox saves you tons of time. It also is all about helping you stress less on email and SaneBox works on how you work. Basically, they don't force you on doing changes. They make it easier to focus on the important things. And they also have you as a trial user there for free. You know, and in essence, you know, then you would convert into a paying client. But the beauty here is that you will get a promo code if you were to go to sanebox.com forward slash dealmakers. And that is spelled as S-A-N-E-B-O-X and then dot com. Fast forward to now. I mean, you've been able to uh, make a killing. I mean, you guys are like riding this rocket ship. It's tremendous what you guys are doing. And you've been able to attract money from the likes of Bill Gates or Amancio Ortega, you know, via the vehicles that they, their companies and the vehicles that they use for this type of investments. How, how have you guys been able to do that? I mean, we're talking about some of the most powerful people on the planet getting behind this company. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I have to pinch myself uh, a, a lot, you know, a lot of hard work. I mean, a lot, a lot of hard work. And for us, uh, as a company, we really had to do a little bit of a reset in terms of our culture. And it was uh, my COO, Connor, who who said, look, you know, our, uh, we have some toxicity here. We don't talk about our values. We don't we don't articulate what are our values. We don't talk about our mission enough. And uh, we use the, the 
very little dollars we had to bring in some outside help and really reset our culture and reset the way we did business. And I attribute that as really the turning point for our company. Um, it's, it's when we really started to come together as a team. And uh, I, I can't explain it. There's something intangible. But we started knocking down all the milestones we needed in order to convince investors. And it wasn't overnight. It was step by step. Uh, one of our early investors was, was Patagonia Tinshed Ventures, and that helped us a, a lot. Um, and then we were able to scale the technology and, and do what we said we were going to do. And that helped us build credibility and those wins keep building wins. And so that's another important thing of our journey and something I say all the time to our team is that we have to just keep winning. Now, one thing that is very interesting here that um, that that you really recommend or get behind is being able to take every call and email. Sometimes, you know. Some of those emails, you know, that look too good to be true are actually very good and they are true. So, so tell us about this. Yeah, I, I hope Rand's not going to kill me, but uh, I, he sent us a note on LinkedIn um, and he was from a new, new outfit called 8090. Uh, and we didn't know, uh, I mean, his resume's LinkedIn almost, almost looked too good to be true. And Unfortunately, uh, there's a lot of noise out there uh, on LinkedIn, especially for entrepreneurs. And so I wasn't sure if it was real or not, uh, but our, our, our CFO at the time, uh, who's now our CBO, Luke, said, no, I think this is real. I'm, I'm going to pursue this. And he did. And I'm so glad he did because uh, 8090, they've been a great investor. They've allowed us the, the runway, the bridge capital in order to get uh, Breakthrough Energy Ventures. That's the fund Bill Gates started. Uh, as our lead for our Series B. And without 8090, we probably would not have been able to do that. Um, and so, yeah, take those calls. You you mentioned uh, that Dorotega uh, started company Inditex. Um, and that investment also kind of came from a, 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 an email that looked more like somebody just trying to understand the la landscape of circularity in the fashion business, but it led to an amazing partnership. And so, yes, take those calls, take those emails. You never know. Now, now that we're talking about people, because obviously investors, you know, there are, there are people and it's all about surrounding yourself by the right, you know, individuals. What about, what are your thoughts on spending, you know, more and more, you know, on culture, whether it's resources, time, whatever that is, more on culture. Why? Whatever you think you need to spend uh, in terms of time or money or resources, you probably two exit uh, because it's, it all comes down to the people. It all comes down to the team. And when you're venture backed and you're still relatively small and you're trying to disrupt entrenched players, every person has to be a heck yeah. Um, and and I, I heard that from another now very successful uh, entrepreneur, but uh, it, it's absolutely true. And culture helps you see if somebody is a right fit. Some people are outstanding performers but in the right environment, in the right scenario. And and, uh, and it might not be right for you and your culture. And so I think uh, it's, it's, it's very important to spend time on that. And toxicity, how do you, how do you identify that? How do you know if uh, someone in that culture that you're trying to embrace and to protect so much, how do you know when someone is not a fit and how do you act quickly? Yeah, I think honestly, um, in the early days, I didn't act quickly enough uh, with that, and 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 you you just know it um, when people stop being open and honest in their communication, uh, when people stop taking ownership for the decisions they made, good or bad, 
Uh, we're all human. We're all going to make mistakes. But when that when that stops happening, those things stop happening. Um, that those are good early warning signs that you have some toxicity. And, and the best thing to do is to just jump in the fire and address it immediately. Now, for the people that are listening to really, you know, get it to how how big is the company today? Anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything that you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, we're uh, almost 50 people now. Um, and that's been a pretty rapid growth for us. We did close our Series B uh, less than a year ago. Uh, and at that time, we were maybe uh, 14 people. Uh, and so when you onboard that many people, it's really important that it's not you know, an exercise where people show up and, and nobody's prepared to receive them and they don't know where their desk is or a computer or have an email. You know, we, we've spent a lot of time, again, investing in culture, making sure that they, they, they feel welcome, but that we bring them up to speed because the sooner we can get people onboarded and up to speed, the, the, the sooner they can help the company on its mission. And talking about the mission, I mean, I think that the wind, you know, is definitely, you know, blowing behind your guys' back because, you know, back then, I, I don't think that the consciousness around protecting the planet, you know, was so, um, you know, clear and and, and, and and now, you know, with climate change and, you know, all of this stuff happening at the same time, how do you think that that has benefited you guys? Because, I mean, you got started with the company a long time ago, so way before that consciousness was there. Yeah, you know, our mission is to protect the planet from the cost of clothing. And I I, I think, uh, you know, unfortunately, we've just had a lot of climate disaster, especially the last four or five years, whether it's hurricanes, fires, flooding. Um, you know, when, when I'm talking to the traditional venture capitalists out in Silicon Valley and they can't let their kids outside to play because the air quality is too low from fires, I think that starts to really resonate with people. And um, and that combined with with other factors as well. Um, Gen Z is doing a great job of, of uh, voting with their pocketbooks. And I think big business is, is noticing that. And additionally, we're also seeing a lot of regulatory changes, particularly in, in Europe and certain parts of the United States like California. And so when you put all those things together, uh, the investment community sees a real opportunity here. I think too many times people think protecting the 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 planet is a, is a cost instead of looking at it as an economic opportunity. And it, it is for sure a major, major opportunity. So as we're talking about opportunities here and, and where things are heading, imagine you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Cirque is fully realized. What does that world look like? Yeah, I think it's going to look a, a lot different than today. Uh, right. So today we think a lot about our clothing as something, uh, you know, you buy it, you, you, you put it in your closet. But the reality is most of the stuff in a, sits in our closet unused. And so we like to talk about uh, new models where, you know, clothing is, is, first of all, designed for circularity. It's designed to be reused. The, the, the cradle to cradle philosophy is there. Uh, that um, that the brands have a relationship with you, but it's not like you just sell. It's almost like you're leasing the molecules, right? And we just keep recirculating them. So you're wearing the same molecules for life. And the way to do that in a very practical way is, is to have recycling hubs all over the place using technology like CERC, having a robust collection system, linking this all together. And I think digital has a huge place to play here in tracking this stuff, connecting. 
consumers with all these uh, these collection points digitally and then getting into facilities like ours so it can be recycled over and over again. And back then too, I mean, as we're thinking about, you know, where things are heading, obviously we can't forget, you know, the past and and, and some of the great things that you guys were able to do and, and some of them that were very nerve wracking uh, as well because you guys did a rebrand and rebranding yeah. is not easy. Uh, it's just, it's super challenging. I mean, we've seen many companies literally going bust because they didn't, you know, they mismanaged that rebranding process. So how did you guys go about doing it and doing it effectively um, so that, you know, you were able to to continue pushing? Yeah, uh, very important part of the point, because the rebranding was just as much for us internally as it was externally. Um, we didn't look at it as just something for a website. We wanted it to really reflect those our, our core values and, and speak to our team and speak to future hires. And so we used professionals. Uh, we, we created an RFQ for various marketing and branding firms. Um, we made a short list. We spent a lot of time with them and, and one stood out um, to us, Baldwin Ann in Raleigh, North Carolina. And we just knew it was a good fit. And we joked that it felt like group therapy uh, for about uh, eight months uh, where they really got to know our space, uh, the company, the people that make up the company, but also the industry and what the challenges the industry was facing. They used um, surveying data among fashion executives uh, as well as regular consumers to just understand where their mentality was. So it was a pretty exhaustive process, but I'm very happy with the way it turned out. Well, so, so imagine, you know, we've been talking about the future and, and now we were talking about some of the things that happened in the past. But now let's talk about the past and doing it with a lens of reflection. Let's say I was to put you into a time machine and I'm able to bring you back in time. I'm bringing you back in time to that moment where all of a sudden you are doing your MBA and thinking about maybe doing something of your own. And let's say you're able to sit down, that younger Peter and be able to give that younger Peter one piece of advice before launching a business? What would that be and why, given what you know now? Wow. No one's ever asked me that before, and that's a tough question. Um, you know, I think starting with, with culture, um, I was maybe too practical in jumping into just trying to start solving problems. And you know, as you know, in the beginning, there's just a ton of problems and you get into problem solving mode and, and you start firefighting. And when you're firefighting, you're not being thoughtful. You're not reflecting. Uh, you're in the business, not on the business. And so I, I think that would be the advice I would give is to be really thoughtful and meaningful about the culture you're building and the values. Because after you have that set and in place and well communicated, everything else starts to fall into line. So I guess just to double click on that, what does culture and values, what do they look like at Cirque today? Yeah, so, you know, our mission is to protect the planet from the cost of clothing. Um, we like to say that we, uh, we, we're only solving big problems. Um, we have uh, sharp heads and soft hearts. Uh, that's a very important one because... Uh, we, we, we want to ensure that we're very thoughtful about what we're doing, uh, both up here in your head, but also in here in your heart. Um, and, and so that's, that, that's a super, uh, super 
big one. And we, we don't want to do any harm. Uh, we value our environment. We value our people. We value our partners. Um, we, we want to um, make sure that, that all our partners feel that. And it's really rewarding for me when I talk to partners. And partners is such a broad word, but that could mean our, our legal team, our marketing team. It could mean some of the brands we work with, some of the engineering vendors. Uh, we have very warm relationships with them. And I think when you, when you do that, uh, what happens is they're, they become your, your allies and they start going above and beyond to help you. And that's really key for entrepreneurism where you really don't always have all the resources you need and you have to stretch things and make one plus one equal five. I love that. So, Peter, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, you can find us uh, at www.circ.earth. We're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, and those, those are the best ways to find us. Amazing. Well, hey, Peter, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you. It's been an honor to be here. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.